Hello, and welcome to the Leading in Times of Challenge podcast, produced by the Greater Des Moines Partnership. I'm your host, Mike Jefferson. Thank you for joining us as we talk with community leaders from across Greater Des Moines who share their greatest accomplishments and their biggest challenges. Now more than ever during these trying times, leadership remains crucial to the strength and resilience of our region. Let's hear from today's leader. And joining me today, uh, without, without giving too much away, uh, I'm going I'm to call her an all-star. Uh, she was the first African-American female to serve as a Des Moines school board member. Uh, she's been inducted into the Iowa Women's Hall of Fame. Uh, she's been a Des Moines Citizen of the Year, a Des Moines Business Record Woman of Influence, and currently serves as the Director of Community Services and Diversity Services for Mercy One's Des Moines Medical Center. I'd like to welcome Jackie Easley to the show today. Jackie, how are we doing? I am just great. Thank you, Mike. It's wonderful to be with you. The, the purpose of this show, if you're a first-time listener, is to, is to help you step into that leadership role. You know, there are often times we go through and hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? So we always know the perfect thing to do after the fact. So the purpose of this is to give you somewhat of a blueprint if you're stepping into a leadership role and or if you're, even if you're a seasoned veteran, uh, we'll say, because you can always learn something new. So we'd like to invite all these various guests on to be able to do that. So um, Jackie, with that being said, I want to start off with the first question for you. Um, let's talk about a time that, and I'm sure there are many, <laughs> but we'll, we'll stick with one, uh, a time in the past, because, and I'll circle back around to what we're dealing with, uh, with some of the multiple things that we're dealing with today. But let's, let's, take, a, let's take a trip down memory lane and, and talk about a time you encountered a challenge uh, that seemed like there is no way I'm going to be able to overcome this. And, and get to where I need to be. Talk about that a little bit. Well, Mike, um, I think that everyone um, certainly has those moments. But for me, first of all, I am a lifelong Des Moines, um, not born, born, I always say I have the best of all worlds, born in Ames, um, but then soon after I uh, came to Des Moines with my parents um, and lived in the Drake area as my father was uh, a Drake professor. And um, so even from my earliest, you know, adolescence or the earliest I can recollect, um, my parents really instilled in me how important it was to know your blessings, appreciate them. And I certainly appreciated the environment in which I grew up. I grew up on the Drake campus, literally um, my first home was where the Olmstead Center is today, although sometimes Drake is a little, you know, well, um, they did not force us out. We, uh, my parents moved then about 10 blocks away <clears throat> after they um, decided to develop that land. But I grew up in an environment that was open-minded, encouraged, um, certainly encouraged uh, lifelong learning. And so at a young age, uh, that really sunk in with me. So then I um, decided not to go to Drake. I know that's I'm like the only one in my family. Some people think I'm the black sheep of was, the family. Was that a, was that a challenge in and of itself for you? Have to uh, tell your family members that's that's what you decided not to do, given that history. I, good question. Absolutely. Well, you know, my dad was very understanding, especially since I pretty much lived on campus. However, the deal was. If I was to go to a school that wasn't Drake, I was 
to go to a school that um, had a tuition exchange with Drake. So he actually took me on the, you know, um, campus visits of schools that, um, you know, had that exchange. And we landed in Minnesota. And so again, like I said, the challenge is leaving the comfort of where, um, you know, where I was raised, even though uh, Minnesota wasn't that far. I actually had the intention of going to school maybe in Minneapolis. It was an exciting city at that time. Um, First Avenue, if you know anything about uh, downtown Minneapolis, Uh was just opening up. And guess what? There was an up and coming entertainer named Prince. (laughs) So I certainly, you know, was pulled in by this is where I want to go. However, my dad wisely said, but will you study there? (laughs) (laughs) Always comes back to bed, doesn't it? Yeah, really. Yes. So um, instead of um, the schools that I wanted to go to that were in the cities, I chose a school that was 25 miles away in Northfield, Minnesota, um, Carleton College. And so there the challenge was, um, being surrounded and engaged with individuals who um, did not grow up in the same environment I did. My roommate was um, from Atlanta, Georgia, so a large city mm-hmm. um, where they had a robust, um, particularly African-American population. And the joke kind of on campus was when Jackie leaves Iowa to come to Carleton, the African-American population of Iowa decreases by 50%. Of course, we know that's not true. We know that's not true. And so they learned a lot from me as well. But fast forward to, um, I graduated. I did spend some time living outside of Iowa after graduation. Um, But then I came back. I came back um, for some more personal reasons. Um, But I came back because this was the city um, that raised me. And I wanted to kind of go back on my early learnings or the early education that I received of to whom much is given, much is required. And I wanted to be able to make a difference in my own community. So I started out, I had a career for many, many years, um, in insurance, like, you know, a lot of people who come to Des Moines do. Um, I was in human resources. And then um, when there was a change at um, that organization, um, I took some time to think about my next move. And here I might interject that I talked to a lot of people who go through transitions, or I have since talked to a lot of folks who go through transitions. And many times, Mike, we don't recognize what a gross opportunity that is. Um, No matter how uh, you view the transition from your previous engagement to your next challenge, it is a time where you can do self-reflection. So I decided that... um, Healthcare at the time seemed like an interesting opportunity for me. Um, I had served on a board, a healthcare board here in Des Moines prior to my accepting this employment. And for the first few years, I was doing similar work in human resources to what, what I had done in my previous employment. And then 
And this is something that is very typical of healthcare. We go through these episodic shifts in terms of um, healthcare delivery, the environment. And it became clear in 2008 with the passing of the Affordable Care Act that there were going to be newly insured residents and citizens who had never had a healthcare experience. So it gave me an opportunity. I shifted once again from, from an HR role to now I am in what we call the mission area, which fits well with what I do. And we utilize that opportunity to engage uh, these newly insured individuals through their organizations, their faith-based institutions, and help them much like the title of a community health care worker is now, um, help them navigate the um, system. The goal was to steer them towards uh, preventive care. So then, just like everything else, the healthcare, in healthcare, we also, as for-profit companies do, go through mergers and financial challenges. Mm -hmm. And these are often difficult um, or maybe expedited in healthcare because sometimes the way that you have delivered a service is no longer the most efficient or there are more opportunities. And so I have been through um, staff downsizing and um, that is, you know, that's very um, difficult really. And we're all humans and it's very hard to, you know, help individuals um, go through that. But I think that they understand that the um, individuals that I worked with um, understood that I myself have been through transitions. So sometimes our experience is helpful at different stages of our life. And so now um, some people ask if this past 13 months has been the greatest challenge um, that I know of in my 15 years in healthcare. The coronavirus pandemic certainly did overwhelmingly change many, many facets of um, our healthcare environment from in the early stages where we didn't expect or anticipate that, uh, or we didn't have a, you know, that we weren't um, really understanding what type of protocol needed to be followed for no more elective surgeries. Um, certainly PPE, as you know, was a, a, a concern in the beginning that we would have enough for entire staff. Um, and then even staffing itself, um, my role um, often changed during the beginning phases of the coronavirus, where I had do, been doing um, mainly community outreach, which I still um, was involved in. I began um, filling in for areas so that people could call their, could spend their, or take time and attention to our coronavirus patients. Mm -hmm. So I did temperature checks. I did calling of family members and individuals who, as our visitor policy changed. Um, and so you have to be ready really to shift in almost any profession. Um, but in healthcare this past 13 months, I think that that was the greatest challenge was some of us were doing roles 
uh, that we may not have anticipated. And so, Mike, as I sit here today and think of um, where we are and those of us who um, are kind of leading uh, in this healthcare environment, number one, I think it's important communication. And I am spending um, a lot of my focus on communication about um, vaccination. As you know, there's vaccination hesitancy in communities of color. And uh, just last week, I participated in four panels um, where we talk to experts and help answer questions. Uh, so a lot of information is shared about that. Jackie, talk about that a little bit, because I, you, you do hear that a lot of people of color do have those misconceptions, especially about um, vaccines and whatnot. Um, maybe expand for our listeners on that, because I'm not sure that even though people hear about it, they don't understand why. So if you don't mind, uh, if it's all right with you, I'd like to maybe shed a little bit of light on why. And why, that's, and, why that's, and why it's a challenge. It certainly is a challenge. And, and um, there is an aspect of history that we call a historical trauma that is important to understand the beginnings, uh, the relationship between hesitancy and in our history in this country, um, the 1619 Project uh, captured, I think, the beginnings where Africans uh, that were enslaved were often used in experimental medical studies. And then you, even throughout history, you fast forward to the 1932 with the Tuskegee I call it the so-called syphilis study, where 600 African-American males were told that uh, half had contracted syphilis and the other half um, were disease-free. But they were told that they would be uh, studied in terms of better health procedures or treatment, when in effect... They were not, um, at the very least, were not even given penicillin, which um, became well known a little later during this study as, you know, treatment for uh, syphilis disease. So that experiment went on from 1932 and certainly met with many um, medical maladies as a result and even fatalities right. as a result of the mistreatment through 1972. It's hard to believe that. Right. But uh, an article in the Associated Press outed, so to speak, that experiment and that ended really that egregious study. And then there are so many other examples, Mike. Um, Henrietta Lacks is another one that um, historians often call attention to. And this is a young woman who, um, after she expired, her cells were used without permission of either the patient or her family for experimentation. Um, and while there has been benefit as a result of studying her cells, particularly for those who suffer from cervical cancers, uh, the, again, pointing to the me medical guinea pig, so to speak, that African-Americans um, really, you know, visualized and became embedded in our psyche in terms of how we're treated. Okay. So then let's stay on that track for a little bit as far as, as 
challenges. So you now in the healthcare profession, um, tasked with a lot of these people that are coming now as a result of the Affordable Care Act and uh, just different variances, whatever they may be. How do you how do you set your teams up? How do you lead your teams to let these people know that okay, this is something that is okay to do? Because like again, to me, it just seems like to your point, people are saying no based on you know things in the past. There's no way we're touching this thing. I mean, I like I said, I've heard the comments myself. Um, how do you how do you lead your team through that, knowing that you're going to have to go up against a lot of people that are like. Uh, this isn't for me, to put it mildly. <laughs> right. Um, You're right. I you, wish it was mild, but it is so burnt. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. So how do you so how do you lead your teams through that? Well, it's two pronged. First of all, um, being inside healthcare, I have an opportunity, and and I, actually more than an opportunity, um, I really have a mandate to educate um, and make aware. Um, of our healthcare, uh, healthcare professionals, the history that I just explained to you and why it's important that they understand through cultural competency how personalized healthcare is as important as almost anything that we do. And understanding, I often call it cultural humility, Mike, because we need to do as healthcare professionals self-reflection and make sure that unconscious bias and implicit bias does not play a role. I wish I had a nickel for every time that I have heard individuals in focus groups um, say, well, I wasn't asked the right questions, you know, about my um, ailment, or I'm not sure that the mm-hmm. provider really understood, you know, what I was saying. There's the pain quota that comes back over and over again where there is a stereotype that African-Americans can accept more pain. Those are not, um, are not um, even at any point of diagnosis um, asked if they um, are given, you know, any type of medication that would, you know, be pain medication. Of course, we are in the age where we're probably more sensitive to, you know, prescribing medication. Mm -hmm. But that stereotype is prevalent. And so it does exist in terms of our um, communities of color um, feeling mistrust with the system. So that's one part of what I do is help healthcare professionals understand that. And then part two is the community awareness and the... um, importance of being transparent and a good question mike that um i think you were articulating about the vaccine hesitancy is number one is it safe um number two you know because of our history how can we be assured that you know we will have equal access to the vaccine and so i believe that these series of um webinars and town halls that almost every group that I belong to, and I'm going to talk a little bit about my other hats that I wear, um, but we are really elevating, and I'm speaking here of uh, sororities, nonprofit organizations, faith-based institutions. We are elevating the message that 
The vaccine is um, has been uh, studied. The clinical trials included persons of color. Um, I interviewed Joseph Jones Saturday during I'll Make Me a World Festival, and he gave he shared his story about participating in the clinical trials and had had little to no side effects. Mm-hmm. So the more people hear those things, Mike, um, the more that as we seek trusted messengers, and I think that's the key, is um, trusted messengers to deliver that message, uh, the better I think we will do with our goals of vaccinating uh, the previous 35% of African Americans who said they were least likely to take the vaccine. So that's our challenge. Right. Well, I guess before we go on any further, first and foremost, let me just say thank you for the work that you're doing um, in general. I mean, I have a spouse that's in, in, in the healthcare field. So I know wholeheartedly what it's like, um, you know, as we continue to go through this. So a heartfelt thank you from me uh, for, for what you're doing um, in, in that work that you do. Um, so talk about that, Jackie, I guess shifting ever, ever so slightly. Uh, we talk about, team morale and you hear that a lot in these organizations and and culture and things like that can you talk about some ways in the medical field and specifically with your teams uh, dealing with something so heavy i guess now that we are talking about covid19 um how what what are ways that you keep them motivated because again we want to be able to share this with the ceo that's maybe lost or or the new leader that has no idea and is, is losing grasp of his or her team very quickly. What are some of the ways that you keep your team engaged and motivated? You talked about educating others to, you know, to make them feel at somewhat at peace to, as to what they're doing, but how do you keep your own personal team, you know, in a, on a highly optimal performing level at, because of the ne- such negativity that occurs with Corona? Well, first, I must thank you for supporting a healthcare worker. Uh, we are research has shown us that during this past 13 months of being in a pandemic, that family support was as critical as what you know healthcare administrators were doing, you know, on site. Uh, so we thank all of you who have healthcare workers in your life for supporting them because it is stressful. It is something that some healthcare workers don't even want to share when they mm-hmm. come home because of, you know, often traumatic things that they have experienced during the day. And I, you know, couldn't even begin to describe all of that. But let me tell you, I have been on the phone and calling uh, families and sharing with them that their loved one uh, has well, had COVID, but for example, a child was born and the baby had to be separated, or some of our healthcare professionals were the last ones to hold hands mm-hmm. with the uh, patients because of the visitation policy. Yeah. So there are those morale issues that have crept, not crept up, they were always there, but were elevated probably during the crisis. So we pay a lot of attention. You mentioned morale. I often use the word self-care in place of morale because 
different individuals, uh, you know, have different, uh, we were talking about pain intolerance, but different individuals have different intolerance, intolerance to their experiences, their day-to-day experiences. So I think the most interesting thing that has come out of the, I was just sharing with one of my colleagues this morning, how wouldn't it be great? We can all get together again in in-person meetings. We're looking forward to that. And think about it. We work in the same facility. However, we are very cautious too and haven't had um, management meetings in person for almost a year. We're, we're slowly transitioning back at, you know, very small numbers, but Zoom meetings have been our way of life, you know, for for most of the year. So self-care, finding ways that our staff, whether it's um, uh, activities that we can do here at the hospital, uh, maybe celebrating, we have St. Patrick's Day coming up and in the past, we've had, you know, different, um, certainly in our cafeteria, I've served, you know, food mm-hmm. that was appropriate for St. Patrick's Day or maybe wearing, you know, colorful clothes. I'm not sure we're going to be able to do that this year, but things that will really um, make our uh, or help our staff feel that, you know, there are outlets for them. We have provided opportunities for um, meditation. We have, because we have behavioral health folks with us, we've invited our staff to come to sessions where they can talk through these issues. So all of those things. Um, and then people, of course, ask me, what about the community support? And yes, the outpouring of the support of our community has been absolutely phenomenal. The food trucks, the, mm-hmm. you know, special deliveries, all of those were just absolutely um, life-saving, so to speak, for some of our staff. And uh, so the community support has um, actually been almost as important as the thing that things that our hospital staff has um, created as well. Okay. And now let me ask you then, based on that, the things that you do for your team, we know, and you listen to any of these episodes with former guests on, uh, which small shameless plug, I will encourage each and every one of you out there to do. If you have not had the chance to do so, you can find all the podcast links on the uh, Greater Des Moines Partnership website, dsmpartnership.com, and then just search podcasts. But you know that it takes a lot to be a an exceptional leader. And that is a very large responsibility to bear. So with that being said, Jackie, what are the things that you do? Maybe without, you can get as personal as you would like to get. I'll, I'll leave it at that. What are some of the things that you do so that you can bear the load of leadership? Um, You had mentioned earlier in our conversation that you felt like Des Moines was home and that, you were called basically to come back here and give back to your community. Um, that's a lot of responsibility. How do you turn that switch off at the end of your day, whatever the hours may be, to, I guess, recharge your batteries so that you can come back day in, day out, month in, month out, year in, year out to do the same things and do them better in some instances? What are, what are some of the things that Jackie does to keep that level playing field? 
Well, Mike, um, I think I'll pivot a little bit here. And because I have been blessed to have opportunities to be not just professionally engaged, but um, wearing volunteer roles as well. When I um, did come back to Des Moines um, after being away for some time, I did immediately resume volunteering. I volunteered first at the Wilkie House of Des Moines, um, reading to, you know, the um, summer camp students. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I was a former summer camp participant, so it was a perfect place for me to start. Nice. I and was actually fun. a camp counselor one summer at the Wilkie you were? House. I was. I was for that a summer. Is uh -huh. That is, you talk about challenging roles. That is one. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a whole nother podcast. Good for you. Good for you. That's another whole, right. Uh, but anyway, from that volunteer, from those volunteer roles, then I started um, thinking, you know, I, I love these volunteer positions, but I really feel like I want to be part of the um, input and the policy that's involved. So from being a volunteer at Wilkie House, I went to being elected to the Wilkie House Board of Directors and eventually became president of the board. So saw some changes through the Wilkie House Incorporated. And for those of our viewers who do not know, Wilkie House is a community center, one of the original mm -hmm. community centers in Des Moines, located in Central City, uh, west of the freeway slightly, and um, certainly had a very diverse, as you know, Mike, um, clientele. Mm -hmm. So that experience kind of set the stage for my next few um, volunteer endeavors, which included um, public service. And at one point, um, because I had been so engaged with uh, volunteering and working with youth, and because I am a Des Moines School graduate, and because I was in human resources and was concerned about a future workforce for my community, I then took the leap to run for the Des Moines School Board. And that experience, um, I think a podcast on running for office is another whole, and I shared some of my experiences in an earlier uh, article that was in the business record, but the challenges of being a public servant were a new role for me, but it helped me grow and certainly learn more about my community. And I picked out a couple things that um, were kind of pivotal in my school board experience. One was the development and working with the Des Moines City Council on a new library, uh, which is now called the Forest Avenue Library, so it's not so new, right. okay. uh, 25 plus years old. But at the time I was on the school board, um, there was the challenge of, number one, there was land that the Des Moines School District owned, and then there was a need in that central city area for an upgraded library. Previously, they had had a smaller um, library unit. And so all of the, um, it was an opportunity to bring all essential parties to the table, which is a rare occurrence. We had neighbors from that area. We even, the committee was called the Mid-City Vision Committee, which I love that name because it was visionary. Evelyn Davis and Jesse um, Taylor, who were stalwarts at the time, um, helped bring this kind of eclectic group together. 
They brought in business folks. And then certainly the school district played a role because of the land. So we were able to come together and develop a partnership that produced what is now the Forest Avenue Library. That was a, um, an opportunity for me to see um, how community partnerships can grow and thrive for the benefit of everyone. And another uh, challenge uh, while I was on the school board, and these seem like maybe overall community challenges, but it just shows you how in public service there is intersectional relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the time, Des Moines was the last really of the, the urban cities in the Midwest that did not have a street named after Martin Luther King, which we had a school, uh, but we did not have a street. And so again, um, learning how and lead, this time leading along with the city council and Preston Daniels, who had been newly elected to the Des Moines City Council, uh, leading an effort to, again, we learned this from the library, bring together the appropriate business, public sector, and private sector uh, together to work on a street named after Martin Luther King. And so both of those experiences were important in my growth as far as what we call community building and relationship building. Um, And all of those experiences then have contributed now, even during this pandemic, I go back to how important communication was, how important trusted relationships are, and they really um, play a role in, you know, the work that I do today. And then fast forward from my school board experience to, uh, again, serving um, in an appointed role this time on the Des Moines Planning and Zoning Commission. And here, um, it gave me an opportunity. It was kind of full circle from the school board uh, because neighborhoods are increasingly important to uh, revitalizing uh, schools. And certainly now I'm seeing that in health as we look at the social determinants of health. And uh, one of the greatest challenges on the planning and zoning was rewriting a zoning code that that was more than 50 years old. And so I chaired the commission during the time when we were listening to public input, um, concerns about an equal number of affordable housing and how important zoning codes play in development of affordable housing for our citizens. And so again, I hark back to my previous experiences uh, on the school board and as a community volunteer um, to bring forward the necessary input that we needed to uh, complete the zoning code. Perfect. I I appreciate that. Um, And before we, we get out. I'm gonna I'm gonna try something a little little different um, on on this show. Uh, just kind of kind of thought about it. So we'll do kind of your maybe your your top five, if you will. So okay. for for example, let's let's say uh, we'll give the guy a name. We'll call him Mike. How how original, right? Oh, <laughs> I Mike in my family. You've just met Mike on on an elevator. He's giving you his elevator pitch about what he does. He's just basically stepped into his leadership role and getting ready to head up to his office now as a newly minted leader. What are the five pieces of advice you would give Mike in his new role? 
listen, 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 and listen. And I was going to conclude with this anyway. This is the advice that I look at every day um, to kind of guide my you know daily challenges and so forth. And I've had this, it's a prayer. I work in a faith-based organization, but I think any religious or any even non-religious person can relate to this. And it goes like this. May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice so that you may work for justice and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in this world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done. And with that, Jackie, it's been a pleasure. Thank you again for all that you do. Thank you for your, your wisdom on, on this episode today. Um, you know, hopefully as we continue to get through this pandemic in, in terms of the lack of being able to get together in person, we could be able to flip that and maybe get together sometime uh, and, and take our conversations here a little bit further. Uh, but in the meantime, again, anything else before we, we close out today? Uh, no, I just again want to thank you for thinking of me and just wish everyone to stay safe, stay healthy, uh, so that, yes, Mike, we can meet again and maybe at the Wilkie House in person. Absolutely. All right, Jackie, you take care. Uh, again, thank you. And thank you to all of you out there for listening to the latest episode of the Leading in Times of Challenge podcast. Thank you for listening to the Leading in Times of Challenge podcast produced by the Greater Des Moines Partnership. To listen to more stories of inspiration, please visit dsmpartnership.com.